Welcome to this episode of The Chaplain's Chair, a thought-provoking podcast about religion, faith, family, and yes, even some politics sprinkled in from time to time. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Anchor FM, or you can follow it on Facebook and the website, The Chaplain's Chair. Now, this podcast is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because it is the most important day on the Christian calendar, this podcast may run a little longer than the others. I know it's a few days before Easter. Many people go to church on Easter to hear the story of Christ's resurrection. It's the one or two days a year they go to church to actually maybe think about the things the Bible says about Jesus. Uh, They go to hear the story of Christ's resurrection. But I want you to go to church this week, and I want you to celebrate it. I want you to know what it's about. I want you to have thought this week, maybe through this podcast, everything that it's it's meant to represent. You're going to hear various sermons this Passion Week about the last week of Jesus and any of the services held in various denominations throughout the Christian world. And I myself have preached a few times on, on what the Christian world calls Palm Sunday. And every Palm Sunday, I preach on the Passion Week. And I always close the sermon with the crucifixion of Christ and the placing of his body in a closed sealed tomb secured by Roman guards. And I did that by design because I wanted people to feel the hopelessness of the situation, to feel the void left behind when Jesus was sealed in that tomb, the sense of loss and confusion that the apostles felt, must have felt, after Jesus was placed in a tomb. It's not what the apostles expected necessarily, despite the fact that Jesus reminded them his purpose was to go to Jerusalem and die. I mean, just a few days prior, Jesus is riding into that same city, being hailed as a king. And now he's dead, hung on a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. And you have to admit, this looks pretty hopeless. The apostles are human, after all. Why should they doubt what their senses are telling them about what's going on? You know, to them, it must have seemed over. And the operative word there is seemed. But there were spiritual elements working behind the scenes, as as hopeless as this might have seemed to the lay observer in his worldly context uh, by the death of Jesus Christ. And we're going to review some of that today as a foundation and then move on to the whole reason we celebrate Easter or should celebrate Easter. Now, this podcast this week is my attempt to connect for you the events of Easter Sunday with the Passion and Good Friday. And I'm going to read the text of today's podcast all at once, and then we're going to go through it a little bit at a time. And if you have a Bible, you can read along with me. And I'm reading from the authorized version, also known as the King James Version. And I want us to read a couple of portions of Scripture, Luke 24, verses 1 through 35, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19. Now, beginning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, Starting in verse 1, now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, it's an ancient word for saying tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. 
and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. And then arose Peter, and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen and clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. And behold, two men, excuse me, behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs, six or seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk? And they're sad. And the one of them said, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and has not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, Today is the third day since those things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. And then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared unto Simon. And I want you to hold your place there, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Keep in mind now, the Luke account is around A.D. 30. Paul was writing his account here in 1 Corinthians 15, about 20 years later. And Paul writes in chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles." that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, 
how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now Luke was a very meticulous historian. The Apostle Paul was also a meticulous theologian. Paul knew the Old Testament law. Much of the theological implications and explanations of Jesus' life and ministry was left for the Apostle Paul and the other apostles to explain through their writings and their ministries. Now, the book of Romans, and some of which we will look at today, is probably the best theological work uh, ever written, written by Paul. This letter is written to the Corinthian church, also by Paul, and as I said, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul takes us back a little in this portion, and he gives us a summary and gives them a summary of what is commonly known among them in Corinth. And one of those things is what has happened. Now he says, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached, past tense, unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. Past tense, they've received this gospel. Paul reminds them. They received it, which is referring to something they already know. They had made a decision about it. They stand on it, and they are saved by it. Consequently, uh, Paul says in verse 2 that they should remember it. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. Now, Paul qualifies that statement with an if. If you keep in memory what I preached. And I think there's some similarity to what Jesus said in Luke 24, 25. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, of course, the stranger who we find out later is Jesus is reminding them, hey, look, you've read about this. You know what the prophets have said. Why are you slow of heart to believe it? Now, Paul goes on and makes a peculiar statement here. We're going to look at this a little bit more later. He says, unless their faith is in vain. He says, unless you believed in vain. I don't know if that means phony. I'm not quite sure what that means, but we're going to look at a little bit. Well, first of all, what did they receive? Now, it says they received the message of the death of Christ. Now, keep in mind, the people in Corinth, they heard this. They didn't see it. It's quite a distance away from Jerusalem, so they didn't get this information firsthand. They probably got this information by persecuted believers that uh, ran from uh, Jerusalem around the chapters of Acts 8 and 9 and went all about Asia Minor, planting churches and uh, planting the gospel seed and preaching the gospel. And he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. clause, therefore, our sins, very important to the story here. And Paul mentions this in other epistles. We look in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. He writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Paul mentions that that death of Christ is for our sins. 
And he also says in this portion of Scripture that this death was according to the Scriptures. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Well, that's a very important piece, too. If we go back to Luke 24, 26, and 27, the stranger who we find out later is Jesus says, Ought not Christ who have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Paul goes on and says and that he was buried. So we're building on something here. He said, I've received a gospel. I've preached that same gospel unto you. You're saved by this gospel. It was according to the scriptures. And he goes on and adds, and that he was buried. That he was buried. Now, being buried is necessary for a new life. A corn of wheat into the ground has to die before it brings forth fruit. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And Paul continues to add to this. He goes, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And then he goes on and adds that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, Paul mentions that twice. It's an important point. In 1 Corinthians 6, 14, Paul says, and God hath both raised up the Lord. Luke writes in Acts 2, 23 to 24, him talking of Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Okay, we're going to camp here and, and do some summarizing. Now, when is death on the cross? Jesus fulfilled and replaced the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we're going to kind of explain that as we go through here. He offered up himself as the supreme, once-for-all sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And by his one act of righteousness, salvation as a free gift is for all those who believe in being delivered up to death. Jesus accomplished several things. Now, I'm going to use some fancy terms here, which I'm going to explain to you. But the first thing he accomplished is that his death was a propitiatory death. Now, propitiatory is propitiation, which means his death satisfied God's justice and turned away his wrath. There needs to be an appeasing of God's holy wrath on sin. Holiness requires this. And God's wrath fell on his son instead of you. It says in 1 John 2, verse 2, And he, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In 1 John 4, verse 10, the Apostle John writes here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in satisfying God's justice and the turning away of his wrath, Christ took our place so that God's wrath and justice fell on him instead of us. Now, continuing in what it accomplished, it was also substitutionary. Now, the explanation of that term is that he took your place as a substitution. 
we'll flesh this out here a little bit. The Apostle Paul wrote earlier in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. The prophet Ezekiel wrote, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The sin requires death, our death for the sins we've committed. But Christ took your sins into his own body and suffered death in your place so that you wouldn't have to receive the wages of your sin. Let's look at some of the verses for that. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, written by the Apostle Peter, says, For Christ also once suffered for sins, key point, the just for the unjust, the holy one for the sinner. If I could paraphrase, 1 Peter 2, 24 says of Jesus Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's the cross. Jesus bear our sins, not his, ours in his own body on the cross. Isaiah 53 Verses 5 through 6, it says of Jesus, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And these verses state very plainly, Jesus took our sins upon himself and bore the punishment of those sins required to satisfy God's holy justice. But it was more than that. It was also redemptive. Webster's Dictionary in Theology, he explains redemption as the purchase of God's favor by the death and sufferings of Christ, the ransom or deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin, and the penalties of God's violated law by the atonement of Christ. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 24 through 25. It says, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says to them, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. There's that word again. God set him forth to be the target of his wrath and justice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness justification for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God or through the patience of God. So his death was redemptive. Okay? He put all of his wrath on Christ that we might be purchased as a result. The death was also cleansing. We need to explain this term. Webster's defines it as to purify, to make clean, to purge removing foul or noxious matter from, freeing from guilt. Well, the Apostle John says in his first epistle, 1 John 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. A cleansing of soul and conscience for a fellowship unimpaired by the stain of guilt and sin. In addition to being forgiven, forgiven of our sins, and the appeasement of God's wrath and justice falling on Christ, we are given a clean soul and conscience. A clean soul and conscience so that we have fellowship with God with, with, no, with no guilt. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit here in a second. So I want to summarize these quick. Now, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin. Now, in his body, Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world so that humanity might receive forgiveness. And that their sin would be imputed to Christ's account in order that Christ's righteousness might be reckoned to their account. 
He was the propitiation of God's wrath against sin. And he broke the power of sin by paying the ransom price so that believers could be free from slavery to sin. And he removed the pollution of sin by making men clean through the shedding of his blood. We hear the hymns that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what that means. Now further, he destroyed that partition of sin to reconcile human beings to God and put them back into a right relationship with him so that they may never again be separated from God. Now the Gospel of Matthew symbolizes that and the rending of the veil. That's also explained in Hebrews. That's probably a podcast for another time. But if I can summarize that quickly, the book of Hebrews goes on to explain this, saying because of Jesus Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can run to God unafraid, for Christ has earned our invitation and permission. We can go straight to God boldly, it says. What are some of the results of all of this? Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses or all sins, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us. In other words, he's covered up all of the laws that indicted us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is the assurance of our resurrection. Now the book of Romans in chapter 6, verses 4 through 11 says this, Therefore we are buried with him, we are buried with Christ by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, is that true? Was Christ raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father? Yes. Okay, then it says, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. If Christ is raised up, it says, we also should walk in newness of life. Or it goes on to say, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So if we went to the grave like Christ did, and he rose from the dead, we're going to be like him. And Paul goes on to write, so knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. And there's a lot of theological implications here that probably deserve an ex- a deeper explanation later on, but we're going to cover the Easter story for right now. It says, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And then Paul goes on and summarizes here, Likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, there is, you are dead, but you are alive through Jesus Christ. There's an eternal uh, application there. Now, Paul is summarizing in this portion of Scripture all that has happened. Now, some theologians and church historians believe Paul may be referencing a well-known creed that was being verbally recited and circulated about this time in the early church. Uh, But Paul goes further, and he reinforces its truth by laying out his testimony. And he says back in chapter 15, we'll go to to verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he says that there are witnesses to this account, to this resurrection. He says, first of all, that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then the 12. By this time, Matthias has been added. Okay, so, and then after that, he was seen of above 500 witnesses at once. 
and then he was seen by James, the Lord's brother, and then finally by all the apostles. He mentions the apostles twice. Nearly all of them are still alive at this point, and they could be spoken to and examined. And then last of all, Paul saw him himself. Now, there's some validation here. What Paul was asserting is true, and he says there are multiple attestations and witnesses to prove it. The post-resurrection appearances are, I think, as important as an empty tomb. There's a lot of explanations for an empty tomb that have nothing to do with a resurrection. They're kind of ghoulish, so we won't speak to them today, but we know that uh, there have been grave robbers in the past, etc. And we know that one of the stories they tried to circulate as to why Jesus' tomb was empty is that the apostles stole the body. But Paul was kind of dismissing all of that by saying, hey, look, it ain't about the empty tomb. The post-resurrection appearances are as important. People saw him alive. Paul was not giving some crazy story. He's offering witnesses to check it out and verify it. Now, Paul goes further than just trying to prove it. He offers a contrast. He continues in the text to explain to people what is lost if the resurrection of Christ is not true. Now, if we go and we look at verse 12 in chapter 15, it says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, what I find interesting here is the first Corinthians epistle, Paul speaking to the church. He's writing to believers here. Now, this is a lesson for us. People in the church can reject the resurrection of Christ, but it comes with some heavy implications. I think this is indicative of the postmodern church. You know, we have a postmodern church that wants Jesus without the cross. They want Jesus without the resurrection. They want uh, Jesus to be some sort of spiritual sage and buddy, you know, kind of like Buddha. And they, and they want to reject the heavy theology that goes along with his life. They don't want the cross. They don't want the blood. They don't want the repentance. Uh, and they certainly don't believe in the empty tomb. Now, Paul emphatically rejects that you can have Christianity without these things, without a resurrection. You, you simply can't. He goes on in verse 13, and he says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, let's just make the argument here that, okay, Christ didn't literally rise from the grave. Okay, what does Paul say is the result of that? If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. That's in verse 14. And further, Paul says, if that's the case, then I'm a false witness, and everybody preaching this is a false witness, because we're all preaching something that isn't true. And he goes on, and he says, well, if uh, Christ didn't rise from the grave, then Christ is still dead. Well, what are the implications of that? What what What's the what do we draw from that? Paul goes on and says that, well, if that's the case, your faith is in vain. You're believing in something that didn't happen. You're believing in something that isn't true. And if you're doing that, he says you are still in your sin. And then he says further that those who have died believing this false witness account of the resurrection of Christ will never be raised from the dead. And then he goes on and says in verse 19, so if in this life only we have hope in Christ, he's He's, he's drawing a connection here. He says, so if Christ isn't raised, if that's not true, then we're false witnesses, which means you're still in your sin, that those that you've loved that have died and gone before you will never be raised from the dead. And if we are hoping in that, he says, if this life only we have only hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And notice that Paul makes no argument that the absence of these things dismisses the existence of God or the penalty of sin. If all that Paul preached is not true, then we have no hope. Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. And he says, nevertheless, I live. 
Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, the life I now live in my mortal body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this is all very, very clear in this Easter season. You've seen the need for the forgiveness of sins. You want to accept the free gift of salvation and eternal life that Jesus offers. Maybe you've always known about it. Maybe you've even always believed it, but you never asked God for it in a personal way. And that's something you can do today. That's something you can do in this Easter season. And as a preacher and shepherd of man, let me exhort you, if God is speaking to your heart today, that you respond. The value of your soul is the reason we even talk about this day or the events of the Passion Week. You're whom Jesus came to save. And it's a very, very simple confession of faith. You do it in your own words. You get on your knees or you get into a private place and you you talk with God. You talk with Jesus and you confess your faults. You confess that you're a sinner. You confess that you have no ability to save yourself or to earn any favor with God. And you throw yourself at God's mercy. You throw yourself at the foot of the cross that Christ died on and you confess your sins there. And you thank God for the sacrifice and the provision that he made for you and that Jesus rose from the grave to secure you eternal life. And you accept him as your savior. Now, I know churches over the years, you know, they give you some sort of formula. They give you a prayer for that. They say, well, you know, you pray, you know, a certain thing and, you know, like it's some sort of magic potion that it works. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you in faith, doing business with God in your own words, with your own personality and the way that you can express it. And you look to God and you say, I accept and believe the provision that Jesus Christ made for me in my eternal redemption. And you thank him this Easter season that he has imparted that free gift to you. And when you go to church on Sunday, you celebrate all of the things that the passion of Jesus Christ earned for you. And in this Easter season, I ask God to bless you and your family special, that this might be the year that Jesus Christ becomes part of your personal life, that he becomes a personal savior to you and a personal relationship. And I pray that you thank God for that. And I pray that you accept that. And I pray that you have a blessed Passion Week, that you have a blessed Easter season. And join us next week for the next version of the Chaplain's Chair. And I thank you for stopping by today. Happy Easter. God bless you all.